I mentioned this morning that I'm going to be doing Leviticus when I return, Lord willing, in May and June. So this is really the first in a series. And as I mentioned this morning, some of you might be kind of dreading this series. Uh, It's a little difficult, but it's all focused upon what Christ came to really do. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, but the blood of bulls and goats never did take away sin in actuality. It was all pointing to Christ. So despite all the sort of excruciating detail, and I'll skip most of it in talking about it or just refer to it and try to give you the meaning of it so that you can understand why we have this passage before us tonight in Leviticus chapter 1, and it's the law for burnt offerings. Let's hear God's word. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is in the fire on the altar. But its entrails and legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar." As a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his guilt is for a burnt offering from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priest shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. He shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar." But the entrails and legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it, and burn it on the altar, as it is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the sides of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar." On the east side, in the place for ashes, he shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with the pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is indeed God's word. It is profitable, as we know, according to the Apostle Paul, as all scripture really is properly understood. You'll notice there is an outline in the insert in the bulletin. It may particularly help you this evening as we go through this passage and look at the theme, How Bad is Sin? Shall we pray? Lord, teach us once again to count our blessings, but also to count our iniquities, that we may see how great the blessing really is. In Jesus' name, amen. I promised you all this morning that I would tell you one of my hobbies and the things that I like to do, and I forgot to do that. So I get to tell you tonight in the context of this sermon. I like to do a number of things. I like to ride bicycles and paddle kayaks, but mostly these days I fix things. 
and I like to repair the house, and I have a whole bunch of tools in our shed with which I can also fix cars. I used to do that a lot more. Nowadays, it's a little harder to do. But when I was a proud possessor of old cars that I could fix, I would buy a Chilton's manual. Now, some of you, have you ever heard of a Chilton's repair manual? I see some people nodding. Uh, They're kind of going away. You can find all this stuff online, but you go to an auto parts store and there's, you know, Ford Mustang or whatever. And you pull it off the shelf and you take it home and you read. It's got to be some of the most boring things you've ever read in your life. But if you're going to fix a car, you have to follow those directions exactly. So it's useful. All right. I hope you can see where I'm going here. A mechanic can fix a car with the right directions and a priest could perform his duties with these really difficult and hard to understand instructions. But if we were priests, we would sort of go to priest camp. We would learn how to do it. And they did learn how to do it, the sons of Aaron. And they learned several offerings. And the the five offerings are given in the first part of Leviticus. And the first one is the burnt offering, or as the Hebrew calls it, the olah. It is the most common and basic sacrifice in the Old Testament and a good one to start with. And so we have to understand the various reasons why you might offer a burnt offering. There are actually quite a few, and some of them are before the giving of, the, of, the, of Leviticus, believe it or not. In, for example, Genesis chapter 22, we have Abraham offering up his son Isaac by command of God. He never actually did it, but he was called, or would have been, a burnt offering. In Exodus 24, the covenant was confirmed, and that was with a burnt offering. The obedience of the people was pledged, but it was always imperfect. And it always was with the promise that God would forgive the person who repents and brings this offering. God will himself pledge to pay the penalty as he did in the famous passage in Genesis chapter 15, where God passed between the split pieces of all of these animals. Really strange. Basically promising Abraham, that he would himself pledge his own life and existence to the forgiveness of the sins of the people because though he made the covenant, the people would break it. And he would have to keep it. He would have to keep the covenant of God personally through Jesus Christ, who was not only the great high priest, but also the Lamb of God, a sacrifice for sins. So in other words, the things that we're going to talk about are a little complicated, but they're also rather simple in their meaning. God must have a punishment for sin. It's either punished in us or in the Savior. Now the tabernacle was set up, and in the tabernacle, Numbers chapter 28, the burnt offering was given at the rising and the setting of the sun of double on the first day on behalf of the people of Israel. The whole nation was guilty. And though you could bring your own offering, as we'll see in a minute, the priest would offer up burnt offerings for all of the people, all of the time. And this reminds us in the first place that sin is so bad that God can't just skip over it. He can't pretend it didn't happen. He can't say, well, it's bad, but that's never mind. Forget it this time. God cannot forget it. He has to deal with it. And this is one of the most important things we learn in the Bible. God must punish sin. 
And this atonement and all of its detail in Leviticus chapter 1 goes through a pattern of either the herd or the flock, which is the bull or the sheep or a bird, depending on how wealthy you were, according to your possessions, according to what you could bring. If you were very poor, you bought brought a bird. If you were sort of in the middle, you brought a sheep, uh, a male sheep. And if you were very wealthy, you might bring a ram, rather a um a burnt offering from the herd. And so in this case, we find that this is an expensive thing. You are to bring something from your own possessions. And as you probably know from other references in the Bible, you can't just go out in the forest and find a deer and bring the deer in and go, that's my burnt offering. No, it must belong to you. And it must be the best It can't be the lame one or the one that was sick and you don't really care about it. You bring the best, as the law makes very clear, but also according to your ability. You are to make that sacrifice. Now, originally, you had to personally kill the animal. Now, later on, the priest did it. But here at the beginning, it says, if you bring a burnt offering, you bring it and you kill it. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never done anything like that. I know people that live in western Pennsylvania that can dress a deer pretty quick. Anybody ever do that? I don't know, but, you know, it's not very common. Uh, If you have a deer that maybe your car hit it, I know somebody can come along and just take care of it and store the meat and put the meat up in the freezer, and you could actually make a pretty good set of meals from it. But if you have never done that or seen it done or ever been to a slaughterhouse, all of this is really, really strange to us. It must be something valuable for being able to mate even with the entire herd. It's like a thoroughbred horse in Kentucky terms, let us say. It's as if you had a bunch of really good horses and you had to sacrifice, if you remember this horse, secretariat or something. The best one, the absolute best of your flock. Now, when David sinned against God by numbering the people, this is Second Samuel, and we won't go into that particular sin, but it was a sin of pride. He knew he had to offer a sacrifice for his sin. And Aruna, one of his friends, said, look, I will give you an animal from my flock. And David goes, no, no, no. If you do that, I insist on paying for it myself. It can't be free to me. It's got to cost me something. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Now you see it most notably at Mount Moriah when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Can you imagine your son, your only son? Now God was testing his faith and he didn't want him to go through with it and he found a ram in the thicket, a substitute for his son, and that became the burnt offering. And Abraham even promised, we will come back, when he said to his son, where's the the lamb for the sacrifice? Don't worry about it. God will provide. We will return. So there was a great faith on the part of Abraham. And Hebrews tells us that Abraham even believed that if necessary, God would raise the dead. It's astounding, the faith that Abraham had gradually developed in the Lord. The point is, you have to have a wholehearted participation in this sacrifice. You, you are personally engaged. You cut the throat of the animal. The blood would gush out over your hands. And you would have to think to yourself, this is what I deserve. 
It's a matter of the heart, not just ceremony. It became very ceremonial, very cut and dried, you might say, to the people of Israel. They got used to the idea of the priests in the temple, and they didn't quite understand the meaning of it all, believe it or not. But you have to pay with your life for your sin unless a ransom is offered, unless there is a substitute. Now, you all know about this. But this is a powerful illustration that you may not have thought of as to how serious sin is. Now, when you read the passage, for example, about the male from the herd, it says he, that is the offerer, the sinner, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. This is a bit like the scapegoat later on, where you actually lean your hand on top of the animal. You're saying, I give my sin to you as a substitute. And then I would have to actually kill the animal. This, of course, would be something you probably would never forget. You would know how bad sin is. Now, you also sprinkle the blood on the altar. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read about how Christ's blood was sprinkled upon the heavenly altar. And God is a consuming fire. All of these things we know about, but they're all sacrificial ideas, sacrificial language. The worshiper will not be accepted unless we bring an offering. Come into his courts, the psalm says, and do what? Bring an offering with you. It could be a different kind of offering, perhaps. But you want to show your dedication to God. So later on again, as I mentioned, the priests would do all of this, but we still have to think, what does every sin deserve? the wrath and curse of God. This is what I deserve, the lamb. You skin the burnt offering. You cut it up. It's not pleasant. Death, blood, guts, you touch the mess. And then you are standing there while the pieces of this animal are burned on the altar and the heat from that sacrifice would beat upon your face. Our God is a consuming fire, and this is what I deserve. You should be consumed in the flames that are beating upon your face. Otherwise, God's wrath would break out, as it sometimes did in the camps of Israel. Noah was the first burnt offering we know of in the Bible, and that's way before Leviticus. Genesis chapter 8, after Noah emerged from the ark, never again when the sacrifice was made, God promised, will I curse the ground? When God smelled the aroma, he would not judge with the flood again. But again, there was often or sometimes fire in the midst of a camp, or judgment, or plague, or disease, or death, when the people completely ignored the, the Lord, or worshipped the golden calf, as you may remember, false gods. And so whether you're the kind of pagan that simply worships anything and everything in the whole creation except for the true God, or the kind of pagan who believes that there's no such God, and the sky is open, and there is no such thing as judgment, there is no such thing as judgment day, then you will delight in sinning against God because you think nothing will ever happen to you. And that's what's going on today. People are thinking all kinds of new ways 
to sin against God, particularly in the area of sexuality, transsexuality, that kind of thing, saying, I don't want to be male, or I don't want to be female, or I can do whatever I want with my body. I can join myself to a prostitute. I can do whatever. These are the kind of things, homosexuality and all the kinds of perversion you see in sexual immorality is really a kind of idolatry, which Paul says all kinds of sexual immorality is, in fact, idolatry. But we don't have to be that kind of pagan to have committed terrible sins. You produce, and I produce, gross sins every day. And they're repulsive in God's eyes. And remember, every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. The wages of sin is death, as Paul says. God must judge sin. But in the second place, God will accept atonement or the payment of a price, which we've already talked about, for sin. Now, it's as if God is, his stomach is turned by our sin, and now he needs to smell the aroma of an offering that is given to him in love and obedience. And therefore, it says, the burnt offering is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and God accepts the one who offers this sacrifice just as he accepts you if you come knowing that Christ has been sacrificed for you. Christ, the Lamb of God, has been sacrificed for you. Therefore, we can rejoice. And we realize that God accepts that punishment for sin. When Noah built that altar to the Lord, the Lord smelled the aroma and said, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Those sins, by God's grace, were covered even in the world as a whole, so he wouldn't judge the world again by flood, but he will someday by fire. And then we're told in Ephesians 5, another reference that you might not get without knowing about these sacrifices, live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He gave himself up, himself, as a sacrifice for God. And you and I are covered with a stench of sin. And when Christ died for us and we trust in him, our sins are covered by the blood of Christ. And now we are acceptable. We come into God's worship right now and we're not destroyed. And we won't be destroyed on that final day. God can't stand sin. And we have to understand how sin is against God personally. That he is the one who has made us. He is the one who takes care of us. There's the child's catechism again. We trust God because he made us and he takes care of us and we ought to glorify God because of that. And we don't. God accepts the payment of atonement, which is a sacrifice and a substitute for sin. It's the basis of acceptance of the whole person through Christ. And now we are able to come back to God where once we were exiled with Adam and Eve. God promises a full and free pardon. And then thirdly, God will accept or provide, I should say, the sacrifice. The sacrifice. Now we look at these animal sacrifices and we say, what's the point? We call them types or pictures, or shadows, or examples of what we deserve. 
Obviously, when the person brings the offering, he is able to go back to his tent and know, I am forgiven. I am free. Even though it would only be by Christ's blood, eventually, that his trust in the Lord would be fulfilled. But he brings these offerings and he seeks to understand, that should have been me. And God provided this animal for the sacrifice and he gave it to me and now I'm giving it back to him. There were several crimes that you were actually to be executed for in the Old Testament. Not every crime deserved death right away. Of course, all our sins deserve eternal condemnation. But the really serious sins I'll read to you right now and reasons for which you could have been completely executed or killed in the Old Testament for that kind of, of sin. Striking or cursing a parent. You don't think of that one, do you? Blasphemy. I hope you know that one. Sabbath breaking. Witchcraft and false pretension to prophecy, pretending to be a prophet. Adultery, unchastity, rape, incest, homosexuality, bestiality, abducting people for slavery, idolatry, false witnessing in capital cases. In other words, somebody else gets the penalty of death and you lied about it. False witnessing in capital cases. And of course, we often think intentional homicide or murder. So we think of these terrible sins and we realize that God does not ultimately delight in the death of animals. That's just a picture. In fact, Psalm 51, you do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants your broken heart. He wants you to know that you are a sinner and come to him and ask him, is there any way you can let me live? Christ's sacrifice is the only sacrifice that takes away sin. The cross of Christ and his wholehearted sacrifice to God for us is the only thing that mattered. And if he never came, these other sacrifices would have meant absolutely nothing. Again, another theme of the book of Hebrews if we get to that part this coming summer. Love for God is greater than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices, as it says in Matthew, or rather Mark chapter 12. And Jesus says to this man who says, God doesn't even count the sacrifices. It's love for him and love for our neighbor that counts. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He just didn't quite see Jesus yet as the answer to our lack of love and our sin. Not the blood of bulls and goats, First Peter says in chapter 1, take away sin, but the precious blood of the Lamb. Jerusalem was built upon Mount Moriah, where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac, and where God provided a ram in the thicket, and it was sacrificed there on the altar. Jesus would say later, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That cup of wine is supposed to remind us of the blood of Christ shed for us, the red wine of sacrifice. And God was in love, willing to provide the sacrifice for you. I know you sort of know this, but the sacrifices 
underscore and emphasize how serious sin really is, you should die. You should be drawn and quartered. You should be burned in the eternal fires of condemnation, according to our Lord Jesus Christ himself. But if the Son is willing to lay down his life for us, then we can walk right out of here this evening and not be consumed by fire from heaven. We don't have to do these sacrifices any longer. We call them ceremonial laws. They're all fulfilled in Christ. But but the principles are everlasting. The necessity of the ceremonial law to point us to the priesthood of Christ is clear. Christ fulfilled the whole law. He kept the moral law perfectly. He kept the ceremonial law by fulfilling all of these sacrifices, and he kept the civil law by bringing about a new kingdom in righteousness in which we dwell. When you come to Jesus, you are resting your full dependence for pardon upon his blood and sacrifice. You are leaning your weight upon Jesus. That's what faith is, leaning and depending upon Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. And I must, as a minister of the word, say to you again, even if you think you know this, is this something you have done? Have you leaned upon the Lord Jesus Christ and depended upon his blood to wash away your sins so that you now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Some of you are scared of thunderstorms. There's a few of them around here. Sometimes there are tornadoes. At least they are sometimes in Chattanooga. Do you ever lie upon your bed and wonder, what if this house falls in on me? A hurricane came all the way into Charlotte and wiped out 15 trees in our yard, and they were falling over the place, and one of them fell against our house, and I thought, we could have died. We could have been wiped out in that storm. What if this thunder, which sort of reminds us of the wrath of God, really will somehow consume us? Or what about if you are lying on your deathbed? You ever think about this? If you have a chance to have a deathbed, some people are killed in an accident, suddenly not even having a chance to think about eternity. But what if you're lying on this bed and you're suffering and you're dying and you're wondering what's going to happen to me? Will you be able to say, Into your hands, O Lord, I commit my spirit, as Jesus did when he was finished paying the penalty, and as Stephen did when he was stoned for preaching the gospel. Will we be able to say, Into your hands, Lord God, by faith, when my eyes close, will I awaken glory? By the grace of God, you will. And you cannot just die, but you can go to be with the Lord. Sometimes people say, that believer just went home. Have you ever heard people say that? It's like a home going. We lose the person, but that person is not lost if he's a believer. He will go immediately into the presence of God as that thief who repented the last possible minute almost and Jesus accepts his repentance and his faith and says to this thief while he's dying for him today you will be with me in paradise will you be able to say that on your deathbed 
I trust you will be able to, that your faith will be that strong. But first of all, how serious was your sin? Do you see yourself as a rebel lawbreaker, a murderer, an adulterer, a thief? Look at Christ now. Cling to him. Trust in him. He alone can absorb that wrath of God. And he alone could be totally consumed in the wrath of God so that every last sin that you and I have committed or will commit, its guilt is completely gone. That's our hope. That's how we know we have a Savior. That's why we know we have a hope of heaven. Do you have a part, in other words, in the true burnt offering that Jesus gave? Do you confess your sins and lean upon him? Have you actually confessed your sins to God? It should be something daily that you do. Confess your sins to God. And of course, in worship, it's one of the prominent things we do together. And it ought to be that way. Someday, the sky will be rolled back like a scroll, and the trump shall sound. And the dead shall be raised incorruptible. Others will call upon the hills and the mountains to hide them from the judgment of the returning judge. Will he be a judge who condemns you, this Lord Jesus? Or will he be your Lord and Savior? And you will welcome him and he will welcome you into his heavenly kingdom because he has already made you one of his sons and daughters by an incredible miracle of grace. Is this something you are thankful for? Is this something in which you can delight this evening? How bad is sin? It's horrible. How wonderful is salvation? It is unbelievable. It is more than we can possibly understand. It is beyond our understanding to know the grace of God. It is ineffable. It's a big word. It means we never will get it exactly. It's too wonderful for us. It simply is more than we can understand. But you will understand it more and more forever and ever once you get to heaven, and then you will not be able to stop praising God for his wonderful grace. Shall we pray? Lord God, we are amazed at the work of Christ, and we're thankful for these pictures that were given in the Old Testament, so many of which were simply ignored by the people. May we not ignore what Jesus has come to do for us, taking away the wrath and curse of God on our behalf in Jesus' name.